Well, it's good to be with you all this Lord's Day. I invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Our sermon text for today will be John 8, 31 to 59. If you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand and open your ears and open your hearts to listen to God's holy word. God's word says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are not doing what your father did. You are doing what your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. Now as we enter into this story today, I imagine that some of you are thinking, are we there yet? I mean, you might feel like little kids in the back of a car on a long journey because we've been at the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles for several weeks now. We're just now coming to the end of a story that we started looking at four weeks ago. And what that tells us is that either the preacher is dragging his feet or that what happened at the Feast of Tabernacles is really important. And so it deserves more attention. But I'm going to leave it up to you to decide which one is happening here. About a year ago, uh, a friend of mine named Ed Clark passed away and went to be with the Lord. Ed was an old man when I first met him, and we became good friends, and he sort of treated me like a grandson, and I treated him sort of like a grandfather. I would go to the cafe with Ed, and we would sit in the cafe, and I would secondhand smoke a thousand cigarettes with him, and I became a coffee addict with him, and ate a lot of bacon and eggs at his house in the mornings. A few weeks ago, Ed's daughter contacted me and said, I want to send you a gift of a book. And she did. And a couple of weeks back, I received a fat book called Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels by Richard Hayes. His daughter wanted to send me a gift to thank me for being his pastor and his friend. Ed would often remind me back in the day that there's more to life than fat books, but a good minister's got to read some of those fat books, and that's what I try to do. Well, in this fat book, Richard Hayes says this about the Gospel of John. John summons the reader to recognize the way in which Israel's scripture has always been mysteriously suffused with the presence of Jesus, the figure who steps clearly into the light in the gospel narrative. All of Israel's scripture, rightly understood, can become transparent to the figure of Jesus. For this reason, while John shows little interest in re-narrating the scriptural stories, he regularly makes passing allusions to them. In other words, John expects his readers to know and understand the Old Testament Scriptures so deeply and so truly that they will be able to connect the dots and follow the clues that he leaves for them in the story that he has written. And in this story, while it seems to be a complex dialogue and debate between Jesus and the Jews, what John is simply doing is he's showing us how Jesus is bringing all of the Scriptures to bear on this conversation. And he is pointing out to Jewish people that the Scriptures spoke clearly and truly about him. Now they believe the scriptures and they believe that they were living by the story of the scripture and they believe that the scriptures spoke truly about them. But they misunderstood the scriptures. And so Jesus takes those same stories that they knew and he 
retold the stories in such a way that they would understand that not only had they misunderstood and misapplied the stories, but they missed the point of the stories as well. The point is that the Word was going to become flesh and dwell among them. Now, I don't want to go through and rehash all the lines of this debate and dialogue. I simply want to point out that Jesus treats all of the Word of God as His Word. And He tells the story of the Scripture as if it were His story. Notice in this story that as soon as Jesus addresses those who claim to believe in Him... No sooner does he address them and they begin to argue with him and they get defensive with him. Again, on the surface, this looks like just a plain old theological debate, but there's more going on here than meets the eye. John is portraying for us Jesus as a covenant prosecutor bringing a lawsuit against the people of God. And so Jesus shows up at the temple and like a priest, he has true instruction in his mouth. No wrong is found on his lips. He's walking with God in peace and in righteousness. He is turning some from iniquity. His lips are guarding truth and people should be seeking instruction from his mouth for he was the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And yet, what are they doing? They are turning aside from the way and they are causing many to stumble by their false instruction and they are the ones corrupting the covenant. And so like a prophet, Jesus brings accusations and charges against these false disciples and you can see them try in vain to defend themselves against the charges. Now as Jesus prosecutes these false disciples, He begins telling them true stories from the Scripture in order to shape and reshape the life of this people. And so in this very complex story, Jesus is reinterpreting and reframing the biblical story by retelling the true story of Abraham, the true story of the devil, the true story of God. And he does this because the people appeal to those stories in order to make their defense. And Jesus has to show that they are misusing those scriptures. So I want to briefly recount for you the three stories that Jesus tells from the Old Testament. The first one is the true story of Abraham. We just heard in the scripture reading how the people said, Abraham is our father and we are his seed. We are his offspring. And Jesus says, yeah, on one hand that's true. You are his physical seed. But that's not enough. It's not good enough. Because on the other hand, you are not his spiritual seed. And he begins to make a case against them to show that they are not his spiritual seed. They don't do his works. They don't listen to God the way they did. They don't pay attention to the word of God the way Abraham did. They don't trust and obey God the way Abraham did. And so... Jesus levels these charges against them. Now notice what he does here. There's a strange, it seems strange to me, perhaps it seems strange to you in the course of this dialogue and debate. Jesus mentions that slaves do not remain, only the Son remains forever. Now why would he mention that in the course of this conversation? 
He points out that a slave is a temporary resident in the house, but a son is a permanent heir over the house. Again, it seems strange and out of place to us, but it fits perfectly in the context of the story of Abraham. Let me show you how. When God promised to give Abraham a son as an heir, Abraham thought that God meant Ishmael. In other words, he thought God meant, oh, Ishmael, the son born to the slave of my wife, he's going to be my heir. In Genesis 17, Abraham said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said to Abraham, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you. And so Abraham learned that the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. <clears throat> When Jesus alluded to this story, to this phrase, the people knew exactly what he meant. In other words, in a very subtle way, Jesus is saying to these Jewish people who claim to believe in him, you are illegitimate children. You are Ishmaelites. You are bastards. You are children of the slave woman born of the flesh. And that's it. And we know they felt that sick burn because they replied to Jesus, we were not born of fornication. We were not born of sexual immorality. And then Jesus goes on to say, if you were truly Abraham's children, you would be free to dwell in God's house forever, but you're not. And if you were truly Abraham's children, you would be doing the kinds of things that Abraham did, and you don't. Now, in case you don't remember the things that Abraham did, let me give you a recap of his life. These are the things scripture says, uh, the Scriptures say about Abraham. That Abraham trusted and obeyed God, and he left his homeland and his family, and he followed the Lord, and he pitched a tent, and he built an altar, and he worshipped God everywhere he went. He fought for and he rescued his nephew Lot from evildoers. He looked at the stars in the sky and he believed the promises of God. So shall your offspring be. He circumcised all of his sons and sacrificed his son Isaac to the Lord on the mountain. In sum, Scripture says that Abraham obeyed God's voice and kept his charge, his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. Now you know as well as I do that sons should take on the traits and the characteristics of their father. But these false disciples did not take on the traits and characteristics of Abraham. They were taking on the traits and characteristics of their real father. Their works were characterized by hatred and by lies and by violence. In their minds... They were children of God and children of Abraham. But Jesus, who is the light of the world, shines into them, into the darkness, and He exposes them for what they really and truly were, children of the devil. Now when Jesus portrays them as children of the devil, and He mentions the devil, keep 
in mind that he is referring to a personal, finite creature that is hell-bent on destroying anyone and everyone who gets in his path. And he destroys them by using hatred, lies, and violence. Jesus is not referring to some imaginary devil. He's not referring to a charismaniac devil who gets blamed for everything that doesn't go my way. He's not being blamed for the... Uh, he's not referring to a kind of church lady devil who says Satan is everywhere and doing everything. That's not his point. He is referring to the devil in a biblical, theological way. And so he refers way back to Genesis. This is the second story I want you to hear. Second story. And he tells a true story of the devil. Now notice in 8, 42 to 47, that's where Jesus says, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Then he talks about how there's a language barrier. We, we're not communicating. We're not speaking the same language. Why? Because Jesus is speaking the language of the Father, and they are speaking the language of the devil. Jesus goes on to describe the devil in very real terms, very concrete terms, as someone who is a liar and a hater and a murderer. Now this pointed accusation and charge really strikes at the heart of the matter here. Not only for the Jews who claim to believe in Jesus, but don't dodge the bullet, it strikes at the heart for us as well. What Jesus is saying to these people, He says to us as well, that it doesn't matter who your founding fathers were. It doesn't matter which nation you came from. It doesn't matter which denomination you're a part of or which religious festivals you keep. It doesn't matter how many Bible stories you know. If you do not love the Savior sent by the Father, you are a son of the devil. You are a slave of sin and you will perish in your sins unless you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. Unless you abide in His Word, unless you come to know the truth. Now again, Jesus is not referring to some sort of imaginary Hollywood devil or horror movie devil. He means the father of hatred, of lies, and of violence. You know who this devil is. He's the crafty serpent who seduced our mother Eve and caused her to doubt God's Word and to deny God's Word and then ultimately to disobey God's Word. He is the crafty serpent who separated man from God and snatched all of us into his family. All of this comes out of Genesis chapter 3 where we learn that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he is the first one to say, did God really say? And every heretic, every false teacher, every false prophet since then has said the same kind of thing. Did God really say? Now the devil, according to Jesus, was the father of these false disciples. He's the father of everyone who is born of the flesh. He is the father of everyone who comes into the world in the natural way. But he is the father of no one who is born of the Spirit, for they are children of God. 
As I said many times already, the devil's children are characterized by hatred and by lies and by violence. But what would God's children be characterized by? Love, truth, and peace. Now again, when Jesus alluded to this very old story, the people knew exactly what he was getting at. They knew that Jesus was saying to them, You are the children of sinners. You are like Cain. You are like people who hate their brothers, who believe lies and murder one another in cold blood. That's what you're like. And again, they felt the sting of Jesus' words. And so they begin to push back against this. And they say to him, Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and that you have a demon? So it's tit for tat, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones and all of that stuff. Now what's not so readily available to us when we read this story is we read the word Samaritan and we think about the woman we met a few weeks ago next to the well. We think it's just someone from a different part of the world than we're from. But that's not how they meant it. That's not at all how they used it in this, in this context. When they said to Jesus, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan? That was like them calling him the N-word. In other words, they are trying to demean and dishonor him. Why are they doing this? Why do you get defensive in an argument when someone has you on the ropes? Why do you lash out when someone has exposed a weakness in your life? Because they've hurt you with their words. They've told you the truth, and you don't want the truth to come out, so you fight back. And how do you fight back? Well, if you have a really weak argument, the way you fight back is by attacking the person. Calling them names. It's very childish, but we all do it. And so in this case, they are calling him names. They use a racial slur. What are they trying to do? They are trying to marginalize Jesus by calling him bad names, by associating Jesus with outsiders and people who are far away. You're like a foreigner, a stranger. You don't belong here. But they're also trying to minimize Jesus by saying, you're not as great as our prophets and our patriarchs. You might think you're something else. You might be trying to make yourself something, but you are still down here in our eyes. Our prophets and patriarchs are way up here. I want you to keep in mind that these are the same people who just a few minutes ago, you heard this, these are the same people who claim to believe in Jesus. They claim to be His disciples. They also claim that God alone was their Father, you see? And yet, what are they showing us? With every hateful word, with every lying confession, with every violent thought and intent, they are simply proving to Jesus, to each other, to us, to God and man, that they are not the children of God, but they are children of the devil. And that leads us to the third story Jesus tells them. Jesus gets into a discussion about how he's not here to glorify himself. It's the Father who glorifies him. And he says, my Father is the one you claim to be your God. And I know that that can't be true because I know the Father and I know that you don't know the Father. You see? Jesus calls them liars. I mean, he's got them on the ropes and he's just letting them have it, right? He calls them liars. 
But here's where he tells a story about God that they're not expecting. They want to default back to Abraham. Abraham is so great. He's our father. But you're not as great as Abraham. Jesus makes it clear that he is greater than Abraham. And here's how. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it. And he was glad. Now you could go back to Genesis and you could read the whole story of Abraham's life. Everything revealed to us in Genesis. And you won't find a passage in there where it says, Abraham rejoiced and he was glad that he saw Jesus. You just don't find it there. But what Jesus is getting at is the fact that when Abraham heard the promises of God and he heard that in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed, he believed the promises of God. He rejoiced in those promises. He praised God for the promises. Abraham understood by faith that there was something greater, something even bigger than a nation is going to come from you. He understood somehow that the seed promised to the woman would come through him and bring salvation to the whole world. He rejoiced to see that day. He welcomed it from afar. He was looking out for it. And he did see it. But he saw it by faith from a distance. And that was enough for him at that time. That's what Jesus is getting at. Is that by faith, Abraham saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was glad. He rejoiced. Unlike these people who now have Jesus in their face, who now are looking at Jesus, hearing him teach, and grumbling and complaining about it, and fighting against him and pushing back. The man they claimed to be their father rejoiced to see what they now see. He was glad, and yet they grumble. The people point out that from a human point of view, this is impossible. They know about Jesus. They know where He came from. They can size Him up. And they look at Him and they see that He is simply a man who is less than 50 years old. Even if He had been 50 years old, He still would have been too young for Abraham to have seen Him. They're simply pointing out that he's a young buck wet behind the ears. You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Now notice it was Jesus who said, Abraham saw me. But they're twisting his words. But instead of correcting them, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is the fourth time in Jesus' visit to the temple that He has said, I am. Unless you believe I am, you will perish in your sins. It's the fourth time He has said, I am, to these people. But this is the first time they finally understand what He meant. When Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, He was claiming to be Yahweh. He was claiming to be the God who appeared to Abraham, I'm sorry, the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. The God who said to Moses in the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. 
In Exodus 3, Moses said to God when he saw the burning bush, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? To them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So standing in the temple near the woodshed, near the court of women, near the treasury, surrounded by people, lamps burning on the posts. It is nighttime. It is in that moment that Jesus declares to them, I am. I am Yahweh. I am God in the flesh. So on one hand, they are to understand that He is the true and better Moses. He is the prophet that Moses said would come. And they are obligated to listen to every word that comes from His mouth. But on the other hand, they are also to see that Jesus has come as Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that He was sent into the world as God in the flesh. For all intents and purposes, this is their burning bush moment. God is speaking to them. And what is their response? The response is to pick up stones to throw at him. They don't simply want to bruise him or scare him or drive him out of the temple. They pick up stones to throw at him because they intend to kill him and leave him under a pile of rocks. This is the response of people who claimed to believe in Jesus five minutes ago. They went from believing in Jesus to wanting to kill Jesus in just a few minutes. And this takes us all the way back to what Jesus said at the beginning of this lawsuit, at the beginning of this dialogue and debate. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Several years ago, my wife and I were a part of a missionary apprentice program, and we had to keep timesheets every week. And we had to tell where we went and who we did it with and how long we spent doing it. We had to keep records of everything. And we had a little schedule to follow where basically they said, each week you need to spend 20 hours with God's people, 20 hours with the body. They called it body life. You need to spend 20 hours with lost people doing evangelism, and you need to spend 20 hours a week in the Word of God. You do the math, that's a 60-hour work week. 20-20-20, and we all kind of made jokes about 20-20-20 was not hindsight but blindness. 
They used this passage of Scripture from John 8 to insist that if you are really a disciple of Jesus, you will abide in His Word, which they took to mean you are going to be a daily Bible reader. Nothing against daily Bible reading. I hope all of you read the Bible every day. But I do want to say this to you, that that is not what Jesus meant. I have known daily Bible readers through the course of my life in ministry who were very much like these false disciples at the temple. They claim to be disciples of Jesus. They read the Bible every day, but they don't really believe what they're reading. How do we know? Because it doesn't come out in life. It doesn't come out in their speech. It doesn't come out in their action. Jesus says, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. That's what distinguishes a true disciple from a false disciple. Furthermore, by abiding in His Word, you come to know the truth. It might take you a few minutes. It might take you a few years. It might take you a lifetime. But you will come to know the truth by abiding in the Word of Jesus. And when you come to know the truth, you will be set free. Not free to do anything and everything you feel like you want to do, but you will be set free from your sins. So again, we know this means so much more than just being a daily Bible reader. Abiding in Jesus' Word means living, moving, and dwelling in all of the Scriptures, not just the red letters you find in your New Testament. It means letting the whole story of the Bible shape your life and your worldview. It means loving Jesus with all your heart and your mind and letting His Word have plenty of room in your life to do its work. According to Jesus, a true disciple is not one who pays lip service to Him, but one who pays life service to Him. A true disciple dwells in His Word. A false disciple does not. You see in this story, the moment things get tough, the moment things get scary, the moment the light begins to shine and expose sin, where do the false disciples go? They go hiding scampering back into the darkness like a bunch of cockroaches when you turn on the light in someone else's kitchen. It's never happened at your house. A true disciple comes to know the truth, but a false disciple does not. A true disciple is going to be liberated from slavery to sin by the truth, but a false disciple remains enslaved to his sin by falsehood and lies. A true disciple will never see death, but a false disciple will taste death. And that's what's at stake here. In this discussion, it's not just a theological discussion between one kind of believer and a different kind of believer. This is a life and death discussion. This is a true and false discussion. This is a discussion that matters for now and for eternity. So when Jesus calls people to abide in His Word, He means to listen to everything He has to say and to do it. And those who are willing to do so will 
suffer with them. They will struggle with them. They might be ashamed or threatened with them. And those who refuse to do so will be on the side of those who want to kill him. You don't have to pick up stones to stone Jesus and kill him in your life. There are other ways you can kill Jesus. You can stop listening to him. Or you can listen to him and just ignore what he says. Live in disobedience. That's a way to kill Jesus in your life. There are a lot of ways to get rid of Jesus. And in this story, we just see one way. But in our lives, we have other ways as well. But I want to encourage you to be the kind of people who have ears to hear what Christ says to His people. To let the light shine in your life, to expose your needs, your weaknesses, your frailties. To bring your thirsty heart to Him, that He may fill you with the Spirit. To stand with Him in the light, so that what happens in your life will bring praise and glory to God. Let us stand and pray together. O Lord, we give our life to You. We trust in You, our God. Do not let us be disgraced or let our enemies rejoice over our defeat. No one who trusts in You will ever be disgraced, but disgrace comes to those who try to deceive others. Show us the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for us to follow. Lead us by Your truth and teach us, for You are the God who saves us. All day long we've put our hope in You. Remember, O Lord, Your compassion and unfailing love which You have shown from long ages past. Do not remember the rebellious sins of our youth. Remember us in the light of Your unfailing love, for You are merciful, O Lord. The Lord is good and does what is right. He shows the proper path to those who go astray. He leads the humble in doing right, teaching them His way. The Lord leads with unfailing love and unfaithfulness and faithfulness to all who keep His covenant and obey His demands. O oh God, we pray that You will open our ears that we may hear Christ, that You will grant us the grace to obey His Word. Help us to repent of our sins and to trust Him in all things. That we may be true disciples, true followers of Jesus, both now and in the life to come. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.